invite you to take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Jeremiah 33. Putting the pieces together. The prophecies of Jeremiah, as we have mentioned any number of times throughout our study, were written over several decades. In the beginning of our time, we saw that Jeremiah tells us this book contained the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah in the days of Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. But just because these prophecies span a great deal of time, this does not mean that they do not strongly relate one to another. Does not mean that they do not even interact one with another. We're going to see this reality come front and center in our time together this evening. I'd like for us to take a journey back in time, specifically back to the 6th of January of this year when I preached the first message in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah was writing in the early days of the last king, King Zedekiah, the same king that Jeremiah would be writing in now, uh, some years later, probably six or seven years uh, between when Jeremiah is writing now and when he was writing there in Jeremiah 23. The king had just sent to ask Jeremiah that he would pray to the Lord, that the Lord would de- deliver the nation out of the hand of Babylon. To this, Jeremiah replied in the name of the Lord that not only would the Lord not deliver the nation out of the hand of Babylon, but much to the contrary, God would be actively fighting against Judah and blessing Babylon's efforts to destroy them because of Judah's sin. In Jeremiah 23, the prophet then laid a woe specifically upon the pastors of the land That word shepherd, pastors, those who were leaders in the land. These would be the princes. These would be the spiritual leaders. Those who sought to lead the people because, Jeremiah says in the name of the Lord, these pastors led the people into evil rather than good, scattered the flock rather than gathered the flock. And within this woe, we read these words, Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord, and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries whither I have driven them, and I will bring them again to their folds." And they shall be fruitful and increase, and I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall be shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall say no more, the Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I have driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. So Jeremiah tells these shepherds that they had done a terrible job 
of leading Israel, leading the nation of Judah unto the Lord. And because of the bad job, this flock, that would be the nation, would be scattered. He then tells the nation that there was coming a time when God would gather that flock after they have been scattered, and he would place over them, and this is the contrast between the bad shepherds, the bad pastors, and he would place over them a good shepherd. A righteous branch out of David, a king who would reign and who would prosper and who would execute judgment upon the earth. And in that day, Israel and Judah would be saved and dwell in safety. And this one, this shepherd, this one, this branch out of David would be called, and this being his name, the Lord our righteousness. This deliverance would come to overshadow in the, in the history of Israel even their deliverance from Egypt. And we talked at the time about the fact that to this day, the nation of Israel still regards the, the deliverance from Egypt as the seminal point in their relationship with God. Every year at the Passover... They remember it. They have that seat for Elijah, waiting for the Elijah that would come. They, they still remember and they, they root their identity in being the Lord's redeemed out of Egypt. And God says there's coming a day when you will no longer root your identity in being redeemed out of Egypt, but you will root your identity in being redeemed from the nations. You will be regathered from where you were scattered and that will become your new identity a regathering and salvation. And at that time, we also connected this promise to a number of other prophecies, right? In Isaiah, in Zechariah, in Ezekiel, particularly Ezekiel. And recall when we were talking about Ezekiel, we talked about a particular vision in Ezekiel 17. And in this particular vision in Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel saw a twig from the land of Israel. And there was a lot more to it, just rehashing this briefly. And it was brought up to a great mountain where it grew into a mighty tree and where the birds nested in that tree. And we connected this to Jeremiah 23 and the promise of the branch from David. This branch that would come from David. Well, today God is going to connect a few more dots for us through Jeremiah 33. We're going to see the merger of all of these promises of God as pertaining to the righteous branch, who is the Lord our righteousness, and the promises of the good shepherd, which we've already connected, and then see how those promises root themselves in God's promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 32, and 33. They're all going to come together to show that the mediator of this new covenant is the one who is this king, who is this branch, who is the one named the Lord, our righteousness. And we're also going to see not just how Israel will fellowship with this one, but how the Gentiles are alluded to as well. So we'll find in this many lessons, it's also a tremendous example of what we call progressive revelation. That God, over time, is revealing more and adding prophecy upon prophecy, revelation upon revelation over the course of time, over years and over decades and even centuries. God saw fit to give pieces of the whole and it's all centered. And the key to all of this knowledge is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then in this time and by his good pleasure, he reveals them unto us through his spirit. Now, to this point, we have learned of God's promises regarding a good shepherd. 
in direct context to the fact that the shepherds of Israel have been false. They have been poor. They have scattered and they have fleeced the flock. We also learned a couple of chapters ago about this new covenant, a time following the time of Jacob's trouble, as the scriptures tell us, when God would give Israel a new heart. He would place the law within their hearts. He would make them his people and they would be his God. He would be their God, excuse me. It is today, however, within the scope of these next 12 verses and the final 12 verses of Jeremiah 33, that we see all of these concepts merge in a distinct way. The merging of the Good Shepherd promises in Jeremiah 23, the Branch promises in Jeremiah 23, and the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, I gave it away last time because we read Romans 10 the <laughs> last time we were together. So I gave away the ending. But that's okay. We already pretty well knew it anyway, right? But we find it here in Jeremiah 33. Recall last time we were together in our context. We read of God's petition unto the nation, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That petition to call, and we rooted that in the Romans 10 element of calling upon the Lord. Recall with me as well that we connected this call and answer to that time of the new covenant, understanding that the promises related to the answer of God, that he says, I will answer thee, are the very blessings described in Jeremiah 31 to be the results of the new covenant, so that we saw a merger of God's promises, that if the nations seek him, they would find him, chapter 29, and if they call unto him, he would answer them, chapter 33 both being related to the new covenant as the results of the petitions both reflect the blessings rooted in that covenant. Now it's time to add one more layer. You're there with me in Jeremiah 33. Look with me in verse 14. The Bible says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So we immediately see as we jump back into the context that we are still in prophecy mode. Right? One of, the, one of the prophetic indicators in the Old Testament is this phrase, the days come. Behold, the days come, or the days shall come. When we see that, when you read that in the prophets, know that that is speaking towards something yet future, and we are in, as it were, a prophetic indicator, a prophetic context. Within this context, we've already connected this to the New Covenant, We've already connected that to Jeremiah 30 in the time after the time of Jacob's trouble. And God says that the days come when he will perform what he calls the good thing which I have promised. And that unto both the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Going all the way back to Jeremiah chapter 3, we saw God speak of the reality that there was coming a day when both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah would be regathered, reunited into one people group. But notice then what we find connected to these, this promise in verse 15. God says, in those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness, of which he spoke in Jeremiah 23, to grow up unto David and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Once again, we see that prophetic idea in those days, in the days that shall come when he performs these good promises. God says that he would cause one to grow up who would be the good shepherd, the righteous branch, grow up unto David, to sit upon the throne of David and execute judgment and righteousness in the land. And this is the same promise made in Jeremiah 23, 5 regarding the branch 
that he would do justice and judgment. In Jeremiah 23, when we were there, we connected these promises to Jesus naturally. But let's take a moment to make just one single connection to drive home this point. It was the angel Gabriel who announced to Mary at her conception in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Jesus, announced to be the Messiah of God, called to be Son of the Highest, to be given the throne of David, to reign over the house of Jacob, to to reign over the house of Israel and Judah, and of his kingdom there would be no end. So now we have the Messiah, the one who would come, called the branch of righteousness, directly associated to the new covenant. Continue into verse 16. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and this is the name wherewith she shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. So we have a third invocation in this verse of that prophetic marker in those days. God tells Jeremiah that Judah will be saved, that Jerusalem would dwell in safety, and she, that would be this city, Jerusalem, shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Now this is curious. The city will be called the Lord our righteousness, and this is curious for two reasons. First, because this statement is almost verbatim what we read a few moments ago in Jeremiah 23, except that the name that was given the Lord our righteousness was not attributed to the city. It was attributed to the branch that would come out of David. Compare these two verses with me. Jeremiah 23, 6, Jeremiah 33, 16. Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah shall be saved. That would be speaking of the branch, right? And Israel shall dwell in safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And then we have Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen. In those days shall Judah be saved. That's pretty good. And Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. So instead of Israel, now it's Jerusalem. And this is the name wherewith she, instead of he, shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Not in all caps, because the King James give the name of the Lord in all caps. They do not attribute this to God. This is, this is the name of the city, so they don't put it in all caps, but it's the same words. Now, comparing these two verses, we see those differences. That it's Jerusalem instead of Israel that dwells in safety in Jeremiah 33, verses 23. And then Jerusalem being called the Lord our righteousness instead of the branch being called the Lord our righteousness, 33, verses 23. And this is important because in chapter 23, we connected this branch, this root of David, this one who would rule and this good shepherd in part to Jehovah himself, right? Because his name... The name that he would bear is Jehovah, the Lord, our righteousness. But if Jerusalem too would bear this name, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? And to answer this question, we must remember the connections between what we are reading here and the essence of the new covenant and its fulfillment. When God would not just prosper the nation, those being the results of, of various other covenants, but primarily the promises of the new covenant, namely a new heart, the law of God written upon their hearts, 
a desire to seek the Lord. They are God's people. God is their God. And what we find here is that in the day, the day that the branch becomes these things where he establishes this rule and this reign, that the city of Jerusalem will bear the name of the Lord. And this perhaps conjures up in our minds not simply the idea of Jerusalem generally, but if you recall our series in the Revelation of Jesus Christ not long ago, perhaps conjures up in your mind elements of the prophecies regarding New Jerusalem that descends from heaven, which Revelation describes as a bride adorned for her husband and also the Lamb's wife. So we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Skip to verse 9. And there came unto me one of seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, both of these instances label New Jerusalem as the bride of the Lamb, the bride who is the bride of Christ, right? Who is the Lamb of God. We established that. And this would be in that time following the millennial kingdom when, when New Jerusalem ascends out of heaven. Now think about what this means on a practical level, and then we'll transition to a scriptural definition. New Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ, the Lamb which was slain. When a bridegroom receives his bride, one of the foremost changes that takes place uh, at that point in time is that she takes upon herself the name of her husband. She takes upon herself her husband's surname. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27 speak of Jesus sanctifying and cleansing the church in order that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So we have a scenario where Christ is sanctifying his church that he might present it to himself and that as we look forward to that time of the new Jerusalem, following the millennium, when Israel will have received their Messiah, when the church will have entered into its inheritance, where new Jerusalem will be adorned as a bride for her husband. And we draw all of these concepts together into a promise to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Where the Bible says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. The overcomers will have the name of God written upon them, and the city will have the name of God written upon it. The name of the city of our God, which is New Jerusalem. So we have God's name written upon us. Thus bear the name of the city, which bears the name of God. Now connect this to what we just read in Jeremiah 33. In Jeremiah 23, we see a prophecy of Messiah. And when that Messiah, that branch would come, he would bear a name. And the name that he would bear is the Lord, our righteousness. And then 10 chapters later, 
in this presentation of this new covenant, this new covenant that would be initiated when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, when he sheds his blood for mankind, a new covenant into which we are added unto by grace through faith so that we are experiencing that new heart, so that we have the Lord as our God and we are his people, so that we are, as Peter tells us, that holy nation, that kingdom of priests, so that we are co-heirs with Christ. Why then? Why then speak, when, when, when we see in Jeremiah 33 this idea of Jerusalem being called the Lord our righteousness, it's an indication of a couple of things. Number one, of this new Jerusalem concept that, that, that the city will bear the name of her God. But it, by virtue of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, includes us in this prophecy. Includes all who will, be, who will be in that city at that time. And so we see here, again, a progressive revelation. He, this branch, will bear the name, the Lord, our righteousness, and then he will give it to all who are in the city. And that city being the city in Revelation, the new Jerusalem, who will bear that name, the Lord, our righteousness. Continuing in verses 17 and 18. For thus saith the Lord... David shall never want a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests and the Levites want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. Now in these two verses, we thus see a link, and we're going we're gonna to fill in more of these gaps next week, a link between the realities of the new covenant and the working out of the new covenant and then all of the other covenants that God has made with the nation of Israel. We talked about this extensively in the revelation of Jesus Christ, that God has made these unconditional covenants to the nation of Israel, but he cannot bring them to effect. He cannot enact them in them until they have actually given themselves to him, until they have accepted him. And so the new covenant is the essential first step to all of the other covenants. And so in that day, in that day when the new covenant is enacted, in that day when Jerusalem will, will be that will bear the name of their Lord. In that day, we see the enacting or, or the fulfillment of all of these other promises. Back in 2 Samuel 7 is when God told David that they would not want a man from his lineage to sit on that throne. We also see a promise given established at the time of the transgression of the people when Moses was on Sinai and the Levites would never uh, that, that, that the Levites, because they chose to stand with Moses in the matter of, of, of the, the golden calf, that they would never fail to stand before the Lord, a Levite, to offer burnt offerings. This promise is spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. It's then expounded upon in Ezekiel 43, verse 19, Ezekiel 44, verse 15, Ezekiel 48, verse 11, and it's particularly pinpointed along the line of the high priest Zadok. The Zadekian line, which um, is actually where the Sadducees got their name. They called themselves the Zadokites. The Sadducees is how we would, we would have uh, um, translated that. So what we see then is that God is showing how the fullness of his promises to David, the fullness of his promises to Levi, the fullness of his promises to Israel are realized in this time after the time of Jacob's trouble in the days of this new Jerusalem, at the time when the new covenant will come into full effect in, that, in, in the nation. 
centered in a new covenant which God will make with the house of Israel and Judah. Now we who are in Christ and who are thus partakers of the blessings of the new covenant, we who rest in the joys of this new heart and this personal relationship with God through His Spirit, for us it is perhaps not a groundbreaking reality that we would understand all of God's promises throughout the ages to find their fulfillment centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, that is kind of the essence of our creed. That's, that's uh, wh- where, where everything revolves for us. We see history as his story, right? We see Jesus as the hub upon which the wheel of history turns. Every knee shall bow to Jesus Christ, we know. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, we know. The fate of every man rests upon their disposition to Jesus Christ. We know what John 3.18 says. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We know what Jesus professed in John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We, we know and we have assimilated deeply and fully the reality that Jesus Christ is the center of history, that he is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, all of which spoke of him, that he is that prophet like Moses who would come, that he is the realization of the temple and the sacrificial system, that he is the seed of the woman going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when the promise came that the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. So is it any wonder then that all of the promises of God surrounding Israel's blessed future find their roots in this one who is called the righteous branch, in this one who is called the seed of David, in this one who is called the good shepherd, in this one who is the son of God. Imagine what must have been going through the heads of the listeners on the day where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Imagine what must have been going through the minds of the listeners when Jesus said that he was the Son of God. They knew exactly what he was claiming because they knew Jeremiah 31. They knew Ezekiel 17. They knew Jeremiah 23. And they knew that he was claiming to be the fulfillment of all of those promises, and he was, and he is. Make no mistake. But understand with me that when Jeremiah was writing these things, when Ezekiel was reiterating them at the same time in Babylon, remember, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. Ezekiel's in Babylon writing this stuff. Jeremiah's in Jerusalem writing this stuff. Jeremiah got a head start. But their writing, quite a bit of their ministries are at the same time. They don't have the revelation of Messiah to undergird their understanding of these things. They don't have the ministry of the Spirit to teach them all of these things. And this is the first time such things have been shown to the nation regarding their future. They can now link God's promises to David and to Levi, not only to the generality of eternity and to the kingdom generally, but to the new covenant. There's coming a day of where, where we'll have this new covenant, and in that day, all of these promises will be fulfilled. They don't yet know that Messiah would ratify that covenant with his own blood. Now, Daniel would write of it not too long. Daniel was over there already in Babylon also. He was still a fairly young man at this point. It would not be for several years after the fact that he would write in Daniel chapter 9 that 
Messiah would, after 69 weeks, be cut off. That's coming. That would confuse them quite a bit, I'm sure. They don't have that yet, though. They don't know yet that Messiah must first come to purchase the covenant, and then he would come again a second time to initiate it with the nation. They don't yet know that the Gentiles would be co-heir with them in the blessings of the covenant. But they know now that this covenant is set to fundamentally realign their relationship with God. Away from the structure of the covenant of Sinai and toward a new structure associated not with Sinai, but with Zion. As Paul would describe in Galatians chapter 4. Now, the remainder of this chapter is going to sound very familiar to those of us who were here for the study in Jeremiah chapter 31. We read in verses 19 through 22. And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, If ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David, my servant that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites that minister unto me. So God's assurances re-echo those assurances that we read about in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. God says, if a man can break the covenant of day and night, If I could somehow cause the sun not to rise in the morning and set in the evening, if I could somehow cease the cycle that God has established, if anyone can stop that from happening, then maybe they can change and break God's covenant with David. Then maybe they can break God's covenant with the Levites. God then does something fascinating here. He goes all the way back before the Davidic covenant back before the Levitical covenant, all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12, when God promised that the seed of Abraham would be as the sands of the sea, immeasurable. And he links it to David. And he says, so will David's seed be as the sand of the sea, multiplying the seed of David, my servant. Just as we trace the promises of God to Abraham through Isaac, then to Israel, we can trace them through Judah and through David as we can establish so clearly. And of course, we trace through David to this man, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And the chapter concludes in verses 23 through 26. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord hath chosen... He hath even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people that they should be no more a nation before them. Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. God asked Jeremiah, have you not considered what these people are saying when they state that God has cast off these two families? See, Israel had been dissolved 150 years before this, assimilated into the nation of Assyria, and there were already people in that day saying God has cast off his nation. They are, they are dissolved. They are no more. These two families are done, clearly meaning Israel and Judah here, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. 
God reiterates, saying here that in saying this, they despise God's people and it's a disposition that comes with a strong curse in the Old Testament. God reiterates not only concerning the seed of David, which he would multiply as the sands of the sea, but that God will establish the seed of Jacob itself. He again says, if the day and night can be overcome, then God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can be overcome. He says he will return to them. He will have mercy upon them. He will perform his promises to them. He will cause their captivity to return. He will show them mercy. Thus we see from Jeremiah the thing which we established last week by looking back into Romans chapter 10 in regard to the nation of Israel. That the covenant will be given to those that seek him. If ye seek me, ye shall find me. That the covenant would be given to those who would call upon them. Call unto me and I will answer thee. And that that covenant would be mediated through this one who is Messiah. And that Messiah would grant access to the new covenant. And then through the new covenant would come all of the promises that God has given to the nation of Israel throughout the generations. And so the covenant to David, the covenant to Levi, the covenants regarding the land, the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we'll talk more about that next week, as I mentioned. The new covenant seeks not to replace any covenant but the law itself, the law of Sinai, the covenant of Sinai. Every other covenant remains fully intact, but all are wholly inaccessible to Israel until such time as they enter through that gate that new covenant. Now with that being said, let's apply this evening. Point number one, we dare not despise the promises of God to the seed of Jacob. I speak of this briefly. We've covered this a number of times and in a number of ways, so I'm not going to become uh, deeply repetitious on this point, uh, but the misinterpretation of Scripture that would seek to replace the physical seed of Abraham through Isaac through Jacob with the spiritual seed of Abraham through Israel and through Christ is growing significantly today. And with it, it's not just growing this general antipathy in the church to the reality of God's promises and all of the mischaracterizations of God and His promises that come with it, but it is once again resurfacing a strong spirit of anti-Semitism, not just in the culture, but in the church. Notice in this text, as in so many places, and I, I don't think we can, it's a very simple thing, but I don't think we can ever discount it or should ever discount it, that God is not making all of these promises to Israel. He's making these promises to Jacob. Now, it's the same person, except that Israel is the covenant name and Jacob is the birth name. And that God makes these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to Levi. That he speaks of these blood connections. Reminds us once again that God has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. We talked about that last, well, not last week, but the last time we were together. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And thank God for that. Because if God could simply make for 2,000 years, <laughs> make Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his seed think that they're something special only to redefine everything that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a couple, uh, uh, a thousand, 1,500 years later, then what could God do with our own promises? 
What if in, a, in, in 500 years God says, oh, those promises? Well, that's not really what I meant. You just misunderstood me. Thank God God is not that way. That the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. That the people whom God called the apple of his eye, that the people upon whom God's heart had rested and God said specifically in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, I have chosen you not because you were worthy, but because I have chosen to place my love upon you. That his love is still there. And that there's coming a day when that love will be brought to fruition. And that does not in any way threaten our inheritance. That does not in any way threaten what we have in Christ. But God has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. And we need to remember that. Don't despise these promises. Don't despise this people. Now, as I say, and as I've said before, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that the nation state of Israel does. That doesn't mean that we have to blindly say everything that the nation state of... There are a bunch of unbelievers over there doing things that unbelievers do. There's a difference between Israel as it will be one day when they will accept their Messiah and a nation state. I, by, by blessing the nation of Israel, by, by, by supporting their right to have a state, by, by, supporting, uh, by, by praying for the peace of Jerusalem does not mean I have to accept or align with or agree with everything that a nation state is choosing to do, okay? But the principle that God's people, that that is their land, the principles that God has chosen this people, and boy, we are seeing, we have seen prophecy fulfilled before our eyes as a nation comes back from a 2,000-year hiatus of non-existence as a language comes back from a hiatus of non-existence. So don't get caught up in this idea. God says here, he says, Consider thou not what this people have spoken. The two families which the Lord hath chosen, he hath even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, verse 24, that they should be no more a nation before them. Don't, don't, don't be one of those that has despised his people. Second, and this is more pointedly, I'm not getting too deep in our application this evening. This is very much a, a culmination sermon, but let's remember, Christ is the all in all. So then the question becomes, is he your all in all? We know the end of the mystery of godliness. We memorized that last month. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We can read of the new Jerusalem which will bear the name of our God. We see how all of these promises to Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Levi, David find their fullest realities in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that they all direct our view to this new covenant of which Jesus is called the great mediator. The new covenant which is established in the blood of Jesus Christ, what we remember together this evening, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The one whose righteousness forms the very foundation of its fulfillment. We find that we are recipients of the blessings of the new covenant, a new heart, a relationship with God. We are his people. He is our God. The spirit of the mediator of the new covenant indwells us, freeing us from sin, giving us a new life, writing upon us that new name. 
But here's the thing. What they were told in obscurity, we understand in clarity. So we have it. But what are we doing with it? Paul prayed a prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 for the church of Ephesus. He desired that they would know the Lord, that they would be filled with his knowledge. And so he prayed this prayer, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Paul says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. And that which is to come, excuse me. And he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Paul's great desire for the church would be that they would fully understand and invest their lives in the reality that Jesus Christ is all in all, that he has put all things under his feet, that he is head over all things to the church, that we are his body, that we are the fullness of him that filleth all in all, that we have, may I put it this way, in Christ so much potential that his power to us who believe is nothing less than the power that raised him from the dead. The new covenant reflects the reality that the essence of Christ's work is intended to permeate every fiber of our being. There's no middle ground with the Lord. Jesus said, you're with me or you're against me. Now, things get more complicated in this world of sin. We, things get more complicated with these feet of clay. Things get more complicated in the nitty-gritty of what are we going to do with our own choices. But at the end of the day, there's a blessed simplicity if we have the faith to receive it to this reality that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that every knee will bow, that every tongue will, be con will confess that He is Lord, and that through the Spirit of God, our eyes can be enlightened and know that His calling leads us to a place of victory. And if that's our home, thinking about what we're talking about on Tuesday evenings, about those in Hebrews 11 who sought for a different country with foundations whose builder and maker is God, those who died in faith having not received the promise but having seen it afar off, they lived in the hope of their calling. They lived with an understanding that if that is tomorrow, then my today should reflect it. The new covenant motivates our every thought and action, is intended to fill our whole vision. 
that Christ is all in all? Is he your all in all? Or are you halting between some opinions? Are you sitting on some fences? Are there some things in your life? I don't know what they are. That's okay. The Spirit of God does. Is the Spirit of God putting his thumb on something in your life and saying, you know, that, that should be mine, and it's not? You, you've still got that thing, and you know I want it, and you haven't given it to me. And you say, yes, but it's mine, and I want it. And then I look ahead to eternity, and I say, wait a minute. He's the one that fills all in all. And he's called me to be the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He has given me of his spirit. He's enabled me. And if that's my tomorrow, then why not live it today? If righteousness and holiness, if being presented before God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, if that is my inheritance, and if I have the earnest of my inheritance within me, then, 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 then why aren't I realizing it? How are you doing this evening? That which the people in Jeremiah's day saw in obscurity and darkness, we see in the brightest of lights. That which pierced the darkness when Jesus Christ was born, the light that pierced the darkness, the sun of righteousness who arose with healing in his wings, as Malachi would say, that light now dwells within us. To this end, Christianity is the greatest of blessings, roots us in the greatest of privileges, but brings with it as well the greatest of responsibilities. How's your light? Is it shining? Is this how you see your relationship with Christ? Is he tacked on or is he the fullness of who you are in Christ? Is he a part of of who you are, or is he the very definition, the drive of your existence? We spoke this morning of Paul in Galatians chapter 2. As he spoke on the law, he said this, he said, I through the law am dead to the law. And he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a man who understood, who understood what it means to be in Christ, crucified with Christ. That's a man who understood that Christ is the essence of his existence, that he lives by, motivated, completely driven by that faith in Jesus Christ. In that day, they were just beginning to get a taste of what this new covenant would be. We have drank of that well. We have the spring of living water bubbling up inside us unto eternal life. What are you doing with it this evening? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.